Hey, Inhabit listeners, it's Eunice. Well, Erica's here too. Hello. So this series, we're talking all about the ingredients of good public spaces and designing to preserve the authentic cultural places in our cities as they evolve. So I lured Erica and producer Lauren to my hometown of Toronto to see how design is and isn't working in the most diverse city in the world. Last episode, we took you on the first half of our food tour with food writer and cartographer and ethnographer Suresh Das, who taught us how food culture evolves through waves of immigration mm. and showed us that it's possible to develop urban spaces without draining the juicy goodness out of immigrant communities. It's even possible to support the cultural evolution that makes city life so delicious. Look at that, Erica, you're bringing it all back. Mm. So we first met Suresh in a North Toronto suburb called North York. And over lychee and tiramisu lattes at a third wave coffee shop called Another Land Coffee, Suresh told us about the food culture and the history of the neighborhood. Magical. So there have been these waves of Iranian, Korean, and Chinese immigrants that have made North York their home. They've gone to a university nearby, and they've really just created a delicious mosaic of food cultures. Mm, yes. He then continued our tour along Young Street. Young Street, the longest street in the world. Yes, correct. And we had yummy fried baos at another cozy restaurant called Sangji Fried Bao. And that place really felt like the home cooking and family dinners I had growing mm, yeah. up. Also, you know, as a nerdy urban planner, it was such a good example of how North York has evolved, but also allowed places like Sanji Fried Bao to, you know, grow into a bigger space Mm -hmm. and expand their whole business. I love hearing that because, Eunice, it was just like really powerful for us to share that with you. We're so grateful that you brought us in and we're so open. But let's take you back to where we left off on this food tour in the last episode. We were sitting in Suresh's car trying not to freeze. We were also waiting for the owner of the next stop on our tour to open her kitchen for lunch. So, I mean, I was a little distracted, too. May I ask, what's your name? Uh, Sophie Guo. And this is your restaurant? Uh, yes. And then my partner. Yeah, our partnership. How long have you been here? Uh, for this location, just uh, since June. And you uh, were somewhere else before? Yeah, well, I have another location in downtown. Yeah, it has been a year for downtown location. What made you want to open up here? Uh, because a lot of like friends asking us to come here and it takes a long time to get to downtown, the traffic. Do you cook the same things here and down there? No, it's different. Yeah, really? Yeah, so different. But okay, hold on. Because this season, Eunice and I promised we would consider design as our key to an emotional city, we are mm-hmm. going to finish up this tour with Suresh by talking about something, well, that doesn't have emotions yet. It's a hot yes. take. The role of digital technology and big data in design. The more we talked to Suresh about how he thinks about food culture in Toronto, the more we started to think cultural osmosis is like an emotional marinade or a spice Mm. rub that technology really needs to develop a taste for. Stick with me here, Eunice. Okay. Technology increases its flavor, impact, when it authentically represents those who cook or eat that food. Mm. In design, we just call them users, but... 
I feel like this is a little better. I get the point. <laughs> Digital technology has already begun to shape urban design, right? There's been all this buzz about smart cities oh, yes. and the parametric and computational modeling that, you know, does let us designers iterate. And even the fact, this is my favorite, that I can drop, you know, the little guy on Google Maps literally anywhere. Oh, I love him. <laughs> Them, whoever they are. <laughs> but they can, like, measure how wide a sidewalk is literally anywhere in the world. Blows my mind. So tech is really changing the way cities are designed and built. Well, and Eunice, for me as like a humanist over here, I sometimes find the discussion of tech just like the frenzy over AI exhausting. Mm -hmm. We still haven't universally removed lead from our drinking water. And yet let's just chase some shiny solutions, everybody, without solving existing problems. Okay. But venting, never solved anything. It might feel good. But listen, I'm hopeful that digital technology, when thoughtfully applied, can be used to optimize human-centered impacts. Just saying. But that was also the incredible thing about this next meal with Suresh. Always back to food with you. (laughs) Yes. Well, Sophie, the owner, rolled up, welcomed us in, and as she began to set up the kitchen, we learned that Suresh actually had a background in the tech industry. Yes. So I... Prior to working in um, food writing, my career was in IT because my dad owned an IT school back home. So he opened one in Toronto when we moved here. So um, I spent a good amount of my teens growing up in Scarborough, but moonlighting at his shop, learning how to build computers and like then eventually getting certification done in Microsoft certification programs, Cisco and Novell. So like I was the youngest certified engineer at 17 or 18. Now it's like an eight-year-old that's <laughs> probably got that. Record, so he has this deep about. connection and insight about what this emotionless mm. big data actually has to do with something as emotional as food culture and urban growth. I think what was really fun for me is that we turned this small cubicle-sized restaurant into our nerdy tech headquarters. Later in the episode, we'll dive deeper into the tools designers can use to better understand cultural osmosis and unlock the power of culture in our communities. And then we get to cue the nerds again this episode, Mm, and we'll talk to the very person responsible for me being an urban planner. Her name is Dr. Jitsi Zhuang, and her research on community engagement really is a call to action for us designers about what we all lose when we let the biases of our digital tools guide our process. I'm Dr. Erica Etland. I'm the director of the Human Experience Lab at Perkins & Will. And I'm Eunice Wong. I'm an urban designer in the Ontario studio and a lifelong Torontonian. Welcome to my hometown. This is Inhabit. Okay, I'm ready for lunch. Let's go. Let's go. So um, we're in this place called Dreams of Yunnan, and the the size of the restaurant is minuscule. You know, I I refer to it as a cubicle-sized restaurant. You could barely park a car in here, and there is exactly what? There's eight seats, six seats? Um, so this is a very unique uh, restaurant in the city. Like as multicultural as we are, and we have all kinds of Chinese restaurants, a Yunnanese restaurant is pretty unique in terms of this really interesting cuisine that is very much doesn't look like Chinese food. It doesn't taste like Chinese food. And I'm, I'm being mysterious for a reason. I want you to see it because you're like, wait, what? Um, and it opened maybe seven months ago. Still under the radar? No. A very little press. I don't think anyone's really covered it. So it kind of is flung under the radar. It's cooking for the community, but like some really unique dishes. You can see the fire. As those walk noises and smells filled the tiny room we were all sitting in, 
we asked Suresh about his food guide. He merged his tech background with his current goal of creating these micro communities through food, and he curated his own interactive map. So this is a resource of some of the tastiest restaurants for takeout Mm. around the Toronto area, including and maybe specifically those that you might not find on places like Google Maps or Yelp. So we're nerds. And naturally, we shifted our conversation into data visualization, technology, crowdsource information, and marketing. Now, we wanted to find the balance of qualitative and quantitative approaches to ensure an inclusive process and built environment. With my line of work, like I'm trying to physically go and eat at places and learn about the stories of how they ended up, where they ended up, and who's behind them. So like, if you think about that, kind of like reverse engineering it, where do I find the data? And it's certainly not necessarily on Yelp because it, the business may not be listed there. And I'm in some cases, ahead of press. So there isn't an article or an interview online. So I'm flying blind. And typically what that means is my only resource is Google Maps. So like literally I will drive to a part of the city park my car and like just zoom in and zoom in and zoom in and look at that block and that block. And I find that in nine out of 10 times, the maps never reveal the actual names of businesses in the area for a variety of reasons. Maybe they're not white owned, maybe they're not marketed, maybe they don't have enough traction, maybe people aren't reviewing it. So a, a dream Yunnan could be here for 10 years, but because the customers are not the kinds of tech savvy customers that go and leave five star reviews, this person will not end up on Google Maps. And we can actually, we can test it out right yeah, now. We can, we can totally test it out. It's like, there are businesses, but like you can zoom in and unless you type it in, you won't be able to find it. So like, yeah, this is there now, but there are other examples where like you'll zoom in and it won't be there. But if you type in the name, it will show up. So I just find that problematic and discriminatory at some point because someone designed this and someone designed the it. bias with, is built in. Yeah, bias is built in. And so we're repeating mistakes and they designed it with a set of biases and a set of protocols and criteria that literally only allow certain kinds of businesses to pop up. As two mapping enthusiasts, Eunice and I were having a moment reflecting on how mapping could be a paintbrush or an eraser. Hmm. When we crowdsource information through Google reviews, the tech-savvy, English-speaking voices may oversample restaurants more familiar to them. We may need to revisit how we define the foodie goodness of places like Dream of Yunnan. So we turn to a credible source, and I use that with air quotes, the viral TikTok influencer, Freddie Wong, who argues that a 3.7 star review for a Chinese restaurant may be that sweet spot to have the balance of food quality, service, timeliness, cleanliness that gets you an authentic experience. Sweet and sour Fred eggs. Thank you. This is what I was saying is when you look at it, you're like, wait a second. I am like somewhere in the Thailand Peninsula or in Laos or in Burma yeah. or maybe parts of Indonesia with the beach in the background and my feet in the sand. But I'm not in China, right? Like it's like, so it's really a very unique kind of cuisine. So what we have in front of you is one of my favorite things to have here. It's the fried egg salad. So you have this like this bowl of, of lettuce on the bottom with uh, chunks of uh, egg that have been fried in the wok. So like fried 
kind of with the yolk intact and you have the lacing of the fried edges and then you have whole rings of red onion you have some papaya on top you have some carrot the sauce is a slurry of sweet salty and spicy and there's some tomato there so what you're seeing is like this idea a lesson in crunch and texture and a sort of a dance of flavors a lesson in crunch. A lesson in crunch. I'll take that class. Thank you. I think this is going to be something you remember. I I now get why Suresh was excited to watch our reactions to this egg salad because it was truly unlike anything I've ever tried. Incredible. And if it wasn't for, you know, Suresh and his dedication to sharing these places with us, I don't know if I'd ever get to experience this symphony of flavors. Mm. And actually, Erica, that's sort of true with how some urban designers use technology today. Mm. So, you know, we're great at making uh, maps and reading maps. True. You know me. <laughs> but it can oversimplify what's actually happening on the ground. Oh, totally. So traditional mapping, when it's not curated by someone in the know, like Suresh and his food guide, it won't mm. consider intangible aspects like cultural significance or emotional value for the community. I mean, maps make data visual and personal, which Mm -hmm. I love, Mm -hmm. but they are also visualizing the map maker's biases. So I use the term bias because from a research lens, we have to consider sampling bias Mm -hmm. when it comes to crowdsource mapping. For example, if we search egg salad on Yelp, we would likely see the most ratings for a mayonnaise-based egg salad Mm -hmm. because we have a lower probability of individuals who know the crunchy, healthy magic of Dream of Yunnan's egg salad actually exists. So it's a numbers game and it might not actually capture the full cultural experience and it limits its generalizability to what people are rating versus all the great food out there. So we can't use and leverage technology to help us without understanding the biases in that technology. The same is true when we think about search engines or AI tools. I'm sure if we Google a recipe of egg salad, it's not going to tell us about this fantastic dish. Wait, I kind of want to try. Okay. Should we Google it? Sure. All right. Hey, Google, tell me what an egg salad is. According to Wikipedia, egg salad is a dish made primarily of chopped hard-boiled or scrambled eggs, mustard, and mayonnaise, and vegetables often including other ingredients such as wrong. celery. <laughs> Okay, so clearly Google missed, and I love that, you know, they cited their sources, but they (laughs) missed the visual or edible magic of Dream of Yunnan. And it makes me wonder, Eunice, you know, how can the Googles of the world diversify the results to better reflect the cultural diversity or just decolonize the search results? If history is written by the victors, then who writes our web search results? Could finding these gems sooner more easily help unlock innovations? Listen, if ChatGBT is a great aggregator and synthesizer, then we need a tool that unexpectedly sparks inspiration, re-energizes our taste buds, reveals unexpected design precedents. You feel me? Or, mm. or it simply just enriches our understanding of the world that we get to occupy. A hundred percent quick interruption here. As a member of the Surround Podcast Network, we want to take a moment to share a whole collection of podcasts and people who speak our love languages of design, policy, and research. But Inhabit is the only place you can get your gnome facts. (laughs) Yes, Erica, you definitely are the only one with the gnome facts. Anyways, Design Nerds Anonymous is a podcast speaking our love language of research. We've been catching up on their mini-series about Gen Z's impact on the design industry. And spoiler alert, 
Technology, data, and equity are all a part of that. And we're getting super excited about the new season launching this fall. You can learn more about Design Nerds Anonymous at surroundpodcast.com. Okay, Erica, I don't want to admit it, but I heard that people missed our new segment, Numbers, Names, and Gnomes, from last episode. Uh, Do you know how much that means to me? It (laughs) means people understand that both context and garden gnomes matter when we talk about public space. Okay, we've been over this, but reminder, gnomes also means nomenclature. Yeah, okay, for some of us, I will not give up on my quest for gnome appreciation, but Without further ado, inhabitants, inhabiteers, inhabitations, we present to you numbers, (laughs) names, and gnomes. Okay, starting off with numbers. So we are recording this episode in July of 2023, and ChatGPT, this AI chatbot tool we all know, has been visited 1.6 billion times in the last 30 days. 30 days! Oh my god. I know. And the average user spends eight minutes on the website. Wow, that's it? I mean... Honestly, though, I really wonder how many hours are saved due to those eight minutes. I'm just saying. Mm-hmm. Anyway, next up, names. So we got George Box, a British statistician known as one of the greatest statistical minds of the 20th century, hmm. stated in 1976, all models are wrong, but some are useful. In public health, we create advanced regression models to estimate the relationship between dependent and independent variables. For example, how many bows, independent variable, can I eat until I unlock complete joy, dependent variable? In these statistical models, we control for race, socioeconomic status, or educational attainment. So we can answer more advanced questions like, what is the association between extreme heat and cognitive function in communities of color compared to their predominantly white neighborhood Mm -hmm. counterparts? But these models cannot fully answer these questions because we may not know about social cohesion of a neighborhood or the presence of air conditioning or chronic conditions. So we need to explore continually to answer fully. I just learned something new. Thank Mm. you. Well, you want to learn something else new? I got a gnome fact for you. (laughs) So garden gnomes fell out of fashion during the World Wars because of their association with Germany. But in the 50s and 60s, they were back and better than ever. Mass-produced, made of concrete, cheaper, smaller than their three-foot predecessors, which is sort of terrifying. And the mass production took them from the Royal International Horticultural Exhibition to the suburbs. But through this, we may have lost the artistry of gnome culture. Okay, thank you. And back to our (laughs) regularly scheduled programming nomenclature. Sorry. Uh, I thought it was garden gnomes. (laughs) Our nomenclature is the internet of things or IOT. And it's an essential component of smart cities and the evolution Mm -hmm. of technology embedded in our cities. I have so many feelings about this word smart. I mean, same. And smart cities are a hot topic, especially in Toronto. But these cities Mm -hmm. are only smart if we are answering the right questions. So the Internet of Things is an intense network of computing devices that are actually embedded in our daily lives, from air quality sensors to traffic or street lights. And the Smart America Challenge imagines that the U.S. alone will invest $41 trillion in 20 years Jeez. to upgrade all their infrastructure and embed these IoT devices into their processes. That is wild. I have thought a lot about air quality sensors and wearable devices like Fitbit, but this scale of data and investment is actually a real opportunity to impact human experience. 
So I want us to think about this like a virtuous cycle. People are living in our public space, and with the Internet of Things, we can measure and monitor the quantity of people, pollutants, traffic. But with an engaged design process, we can really then capture the quality of human experience. So then we can better measure joy, engagement, socialization, and belonging. Oh, I love that. Tech can give us vast amounts of data, but humans are crucial in interpreting and validating that information contextualizing it, identifying patterns and insights that tech algorithms may completely miss. Not to make this personal, but both of us have partners that are software engineers. And if our romantic partnerships can work, then I believe professionally we can advance our relationship with technology as human-centered researchers and designers. You know, a Google map of restaurants in Toronto can be good, but Suresh's insight and the trust that the community gives him is what takes it to that next step. And no fancy algorithm can replace actually involving people and community in that process. Speaking of humanizing design, this is our perfect moment to cue the nerds. Our nerd in this episode is someone who effortlessly brings human emotion to the forefront of this industry. She speaks all of our love languages fluently. And I am so grateful because our guest this episode is Dr. Juzi Zhuang. She's the Graduate Program Director at the School of Urban and Regional Planning at Toronto Metropolitan University and the founder of Diverse City Lab. Her research is all about suburban retrofitting, placemaking, migration, ethnic entrepreneurship, and she introduces tools that are not merely technology, but are strengthened by the human tools we all have the ability to radically listen, and to build trust with communities. So she's a very important voice to include in this conversation, especially in the midst of all these immigrant food landscapes we've been exploring with Suresh. Like every scientist, Dr. Zhuang answers questions with more. A fearless explorer crossing research boundaries. Her questions serve as our compass to the truth. So today, we cue the nerds with Dr. Zhuang to understand how we get to an authentic, inclusive planning process. The process is more important than the outcomes. You talk about lip service and the tokenistic approach and what is considered the true community engagement process and the more meaningful one, right? And we often think we are the experts. We conceive this space based on our imagination, uh, how this space should be used. But in in reality, newcomers, they bring in different cultural uh, practices, and different ways of use the space, uh, different ways to express their cultural identities and and their uh, heritage. Mm-hmm. It's so important to preserve that. Um, and it's intangible in many ways. Yeah. But how can we support them and make this is really like their home? Uh, sometimes I argue that a lot uh, when we talk about Toronto and we basically people notice that Toronto is one of the most multicultural, diverse, so-called diverse cities in the world. But diversity doesn't mean true inclusion, Mm -hmm. right? Diversity, you can measure diversity based on numbers, data, uh, demographic data. You can show how many languages being spoken here and how many ethnicities uh, in the demographics. But does that really mean that people feel like this is an inclusive community or society? Uh, Do they feel like they're welcome? Do they feel they have equitable access to the resources, to services, to the support they need? 
what Dr. Zhuang is saying here about measuring diversity is important. Yes, we can measure diversity by the numbers. I can throw census numbers into a mapping software like GIS, and it can spit out a hundred different maps and graphics to illustrate diversity. But those maps lack emotional understanding. And we did, in the last episode, drop the stat where we mentioned that Toronto has 51% of people born outside of Canada. But it doesn't actually represent or say anything about inclusion. That 51% of people, do they feel included, accepted, or welcomed here? So it's important that when we use data and, you know, Eric and I love a number, love a number, we need to tap into our emotional and empathetic sides as well. Yes, because design goes beyond data driven solutions. Mm-hmm. It takes us, the humans, to ask how people want to feel in these spaces. What are the emotions, the memories? Well, Dr. Zhuang gets into this. The relationship between space, place and people, that is my core area of research and practice. And, and teaching. Um, Toronto really provides a very beautiful setting to get started with building connections with communities and learning from indigenous histories and learning from the land and hearing the voice of the land is so important. I'm really curious about how do we actually work together as settlers? We are all settlers, but how can we uh, play our role, do our share, pay our respect, and how do we incorporate that into our daily practices. Uh, Parkdale is one of my favorite neighborhoods. I used to take my students to do few observations in the neighborhood. Often I bring people from outside of the town to, to go to mm-hmm. the restaurants, the Momo places, Momo places. Uh, there. <laughs> and my students have done a lot of work in the area and observing their Wednesday night summer dance and looking at how they converted a residential house into the uh, Tibetan temple, for oh, example, wow. and also the the agency of the local residents, mm. the Tibetan diaporas, and how they play such a huge, significant role in preserving their rights and, mm-hmm. and claiming their space mm-hmm. through the creation of the community garden yeah. and through their activism, through their thriving businesses and through their intergenerational communication, uh, trying to really cultivate these cultural uh, traditions and also building this connection with the broader communities. I think that's super, super important when it comes to the understanding of public spaces today, Mm -hmm. because it's not just that physical setting. Mm -hmm. uh, It's not just like that blank space, but it's the people who brings the meanings and adding the identities and constructing that space and turning them into places and meaningful places. But also that power, that agency is often unnoticeable. Technology relies on an input that produces an output. It's a one-way linear process. To contrast this, Dr. Zhuang is promoting a more reciprocal, two-way approach. Technology is helpful, but it has to be paired with listening. And that reminds me of an article I read this week summarizing this tech conference that was happening Mm. in Toronto. At this conference, there was a lot of talk, as always, about AI disrupting the way we approach sustainability in this case. But this bubble was burst by an Indigenous activist, Autumn Peltier the chief water commissioner for Anishinaabek Nation. And she addressed the crowd to say, the key to sustainability is actually listening. 
2023, technology may help, but it takes listening to our knowledge keepers and our elders. Dr. Zhuang gives a few more examples on how to do this listening. Every culture is so unique, but how do we actually uh, learn from each other? So it's not just like one-way integration. You should do this and that. This is a norm. But mm-hmm. who set those norms? Mm-hmm. Sure. Who design, who define, who control? Yep. So the implication for us as the dominant class, like developers, mm-hmm. the policymakers, decision makers, designers, architects, planners, and professionals, and experts, when we conceive the space, we often ignore how this space is actually perceived and lived mm. by people, by the actual users. In our mindset, it's like, oh, look at our master plan. We are providing a beautiful vision for the community. Uh, you should be happy, right? <laughs> but the outcome is the opposite, right? The, uh, if you don't really know what they want, what mm-hmm. people want and what they need in that space and what for, right? The most problematic thing is the actual users, they are silenced because they are not properly consulted. Their needs are not appropriately understood and acknowledged and reflected in the design of the space. If we talk about actions for planners, for decision makers, for this dominant class, they need to be careful because it will end up in two scenarios. One is people strongly against you. Uh, There's a public outcry, there's protesting. People want to kill this plan, right? Because it's nonsense, it's ridiculous. The other scenario is whatever the city wants to do, the professionals want to do, the experts want to do this and that. It got ignored. Communities, they develop their own space. And we we have fun in, in this so-called informal placemaking, illegal space. And we have fun, we have joy, because this is really speaks to the needs of the users of the communities. So the professionals, when they parachuting mm-hmm. the plan onto the communities, it got ignored, right? We need to really be creative, but also think about what is the ultimate goal of doing design and planning for communities? How can we plan and design with communities Mm -hmm. to truly understand their needs and their lived experiences on a daily basis? Uh, Without that knowledge, it doesn't make any sense. And as professionals, we also need to be mindful of developing cultural competency, developing cultural humility, It's a lifelong learning. Be humble Mm -hmm. to learn from the communities and co-create the space together. It really requires a a breakthrough in our conventional planning and design practices. It has been an adventure, this episode. From a food tour and nerd chats, we began radically rethinking our relationship with technology and food, but mostly our relationship with each other. Last episode, we asked, What tools do we need to help unlock inclusion and representation in the public space design process? Well, after diving into Suresh's map of hidden foodie gems around Toronto, we realized technology needs the same multiculturalism revolution that Toronto went through 40 or 50 years ago. So having people like Suresh to translate, investigate, illuminate these places is great, but everyone should have a place at the table to share their favorite dish. 
From smart cities and intelligent transportation systems to data-driven urban design, technology is transforming the way our cities function. And how we design them. It's true. Technology has provided measurable advances in efficiencies that speed up our process. But we would argue that tech can be food for thought, not a meal replacement. And when it comes to AI, imagine what community preservation would look like if we didn't have systemic erasure. What gets me excited about Dr. Zhuang's research is we can illuminate the unique details that make our public spaces feel more public and personal. Dr. Zhuang pointed out that human relationships, you know, from design to occupancy, are the special sauce. Without these relationships, we miss the human instincts of curiosity, of empathy, imagination and creativity, and the complexities of our cultural, racial, and food landscapes, like we enjoyed in the Yunnan egg salad. Oh, yes. Our humanity is what breaks the norms and pushes us past the generic. So why food and tech this episode? Because they are universal facets of our lives. And instead of ending on questions, we have a humble plea to join forces. Because we need each other. We need to respond to societal disparities, to unlock creative storytelling and information dissemination, to co-create tools so that no matter your ability, age, education, or understanding of tech, your experiences are integrated into this process. You are listening to Inhabit. I'm Eunice Wong. I'm Dr. Erica Etland. Inhabit nerds can be found everywhere. We will be taking the show on the road and joining you from design and research conferences. Next episode, we have a special guest host, David Cordell, Interiors Practice Leader from our Washington, D.C. studio. He will be joining us from Neocon, from the Surround Network podcasting booth, as he talks sustainability, resilience, and public health with his fellow change agents. We have a fabulous website at inhabit.perkinswill.com. There are show notes, pictures, and links to all of the resources and references we shared. A very heartfelt thank you to Dr. Jutsi Zhuang and Suresh Das for their time, wisdom, and recommendations. Thank you to Hong at Anotherland Coffee, John at Sangji Fried Bao, and Sophie at Dream of Yunnan for your delicious food and your hospitality during our food tour. And habit listeners, if you happen to be in Toronto, be sure to check them out. Have you seen our amazing illustrations by Julio Brennis? Find them on Instagram and follow us at inhabit.podcast. Dr. Laura Neef produces and edits the show. Our music is from Epidemic Sound. Inhabit is now a member of the Surround Podcast Network, which means we're cousins with some of the best architecture and design podcasts around. Clever, Deep Green, Design Tangents, Barriers Entry, we're all on surroundpodcast.com. And lastly, thank you to our advisory board, Mide Akinshade, Janelle DeAngel, Casey Jones, Paul Kulig, Yehia Madkur, Angela Miller, Rachel Rose, Kimberly Siegel, Gotham Sundaram, and Stephanie Wolfgang. Inhabit. Uh, people, people first and foremost. Places, power, design, change, and now. A Perkinson Will podcast. Thank you.